This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Happy 2017, everyone. It's great to be back. We have a stellar lineup of guests to kick off the year, so let's get right to it. Today, I speak with Arathi Sriprakash, a lecturer in the sociology of education at the University of Cambridge. Arathi co-edited with Keita Takayama and Raywin Connell a special issue of Comparative Education Review on post-colonialism in the field of comparative and international education. The special issue shows that the field of comparative and international education continues to have many colonial entanglements, which have gone unrecognized by most accounts. Colonial logics underpinned many of the field's founding figures, and contemporary forms of modernization theory continue to be widely assumed today. Knowledge is produced in the global north, often with data taken from the global south. Theory is reserved for northern scholars, and some societies, like CIES in North America, have held more power over smaller societies from Asia and Africa. In most aspects of the field, we continue to see uneven power dynamics of where and how knowledge is produced, and by whom and with what effect. The special issue argues that post-colonial theory, broadly defined, can help overcome the continued prevalence of colonialism in the field today. The co-editors call for a rethinking of the way knowledge is produced in comparative and international education. Arathi joined me to detail some of the ideas in the special issue. Arathi Sriprakash, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thanks, Will. So what is the typical narrative that of the history of comparative education? Like how do we normally, how do people in the field normally understand the history of the field itself? Well, as we as we outline in our opening piece of the of the special issue, the foundational story of the field of comparative ed is one that is very much seen as Western in terms of the main protagonists and their ideas and approaches. Um, so, for example, we see the typical story of the foundation of the field, well, certainly the one found in major textbooks. Uh, it begins with the work of French thinker uh, Marc-Antoine Julien, whose plan and preliminary views for a work on comparative education, uh, which was published in 1817, emphasised the, the need for a kind of scientific uh, study of education and drawing on in the Enlightenment paradigm of modernity. And then from there, other prominent figures that make an entry later in the story of the foundation of the field in the 20th century include Michael Sadler, Isaac Kendall, uh, Nicholas Hans, George Baraday, amongst a host of familiar names. And so all of these figures significantly were trained and working in the global north. And so what we're exploring in this special issue is how what's often missing in this narrative about the field are the ways that non-English language and non-Western scholarship in education has shaped the field from its inception. And also when accounts of non-Western projects of comparative ed are are included in the field's history, these are somehow seen as a separate development, an occurrence that can be added on to the main story, if you like. And the effect of this is that the story remains one that locates comparative education as a particularly Western scientific development. So the concern that uh, Kater and Rowan and I had when we were um, thinking about this special issue 
is that this kind of narrative of the field's development obscures the scientific, the sort of the sorry, the very specific historical and geopolitical context in which comparative methodological advances were made. So, you know, what we were trying to do is set out to explore how the narrative of the field erases its deep entanglements with colonial hierarchies, interests and modes of control, if you like. So let's let's dig into that a little bit more. Like, so, you know, the field, from my understanding, the field is there's always an emphasis on context. How, how does our field or how does the field of comparative education understand context? And, and perhaps, you know, is that, is that problematic? Is that, is that part of this global North um, perspective? Mm. Uh, good question. I mean, I think it's really important to acknowledge that a respect for others has been um, a central concern of the field since it began. After all, comparativists consider it one of their responsibilities to provide fully contextual knowledge of other countries' educational practices. So, you know, one can't understand education separate from its social and cultural environment. And quite simply, the idea that context matters is at the heart of comparative education. So in this sense, comparative ed has a has a history of embracing what might be understood as a relativist epistemology. That's the idea that knowledge is always relative to the particular conditions of knowing. And, you know, I think this was especially apparent in the founding scholars' interest in the idea of the national character, meaning that education always needed to be adjusted according to the cultural context of or the, or the character of each nation. So certainly the idea of context is at the heart of, of what we do in the field. So is this where like the idea of methodological nationalism would come in, where, where the, the unit of analysis is, is the nation, and, and that's how we see these, the different cultures are usually nation-bound? There, there has been a strong um, tradition in the field of this, uh, what's now you know called uh, methodological nationalism, but there's also been movements away from that. I mean, I think we've seen in the last decade or so um, an increasing interest in the transnational um, uh, circulation of ideas, uh, and I think that this is important to recognise that the, we do have people working in the field who are, are not seeing the nation as the unit of, of analysis or the unit of comparison per se. I mean, we've also importantly had um, you know very important work done in the field that has considered time as the unit of comparison, where uh, historical approaches have sought to understand the shifts in how um, uh, education systems or practices have have been differently understood over different periods uh, of time within a nation or within a geographic uh, context. And what has been the purpose of comparison in the way we understand the history of comparative education? Well, I'd say the purpose of comparison, specifically of deeply contextualized comparison, is to better understand one's own society. And this has, in fact, been a long-standing underpinning ethos of the field. So, for example, um, one of the field's prominent scholars, George Baraday, argued in 1964, it's self-knowledge born of the awareness of others. That's the, fi that's the finest lesson in comparative education. Um, so we can see that the field has, in one sense, emerged from an ethics of deep reflexivity. Um, 
you know, George Faraday went on to say that the aim of comparative education is to relax national pride uh, in order to permit events and voices from abroad to count in the reappraisal and re-examination of schools in one, one's own country. So you can see that there is this engagement of learning about others in order to uh, reflect upon oneself, if you like. And it seems like that notion of of comparing with others to reflect about oneself is is very much bound up with the field's many societies around the world. And these societies are usually geographically bound. So in Europe or in America or in in Australia, they have the Oceana, and in Japan, they have a society. And so there's all these different comparative education societies. Um, and in a sense, it's it's these different societies trying to learn from one another. And they actually all come together in something that you, you, you wrote about, um, the World Congress of Comparative Education Societies. Can you tell us a little bit about the World Congress? Yeah. Um, so... The World Congress, the WCCES, um, as many know, acts as an umbrella body, if you like, for some 40 comparative and international education societies around the world. And I think what's important um, for us to note is the the core of the mission of the WCCES is to recognise and respect uh, the plurality amongst its members. So, um, you know, I guess the, the collective effort of the comparative education field is is this respect for different national values, practices, um, histories and systems. Um, so this is this kind of respect for difference and inclusive kind of approach is certainly at the heart of the field and, and even in how it's how the field is organised institutionally through, uh, through its societies and through the umbrella organisation of the WCCES. However, what I want to say, um, Will, is that I think what we in the field have failed to do as a collective enterprise is give more attention to the critical role that uneven power relations have played and continue to play in the making of comparative knowledge. So, for example, I'm thinking about the structural inequalities between the researcher and the research um, within our within our own work, between the home country of the researchers and the and so-called targeted countries of our of our scholarship. So what I'm talking about is really the the geopolitics of comparative knowledge production. Uh, And I think another dimension of power relations, these power relations, is how and why specific types of social science theories and methodologies become sponsored and taken up by the field over other forms of knowledge and approaches. Uh, So, you know, and I think this is uh, particularly important um, especially in the current context where we see the rise of uh, ideas about evidence-based policy discourse where academics you know scholarship is increasingly tied to interventions not only by states by but by non-state agencies so the kinds of problems that get recognized and or and are deemed to be solvable over other kinds of problems so the sort of frames that we bring to understand, the world and the kinds of solutions we 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 um, we kind of sponsor in our work are very very important. They have very real uh, material effects, given the link between research and policy and intervention. So I guess to put this simply, comparative education has been really great at, at acknowledging diversity, but I think it's done less well at 
acknowledging the ways in which historically specific power relations really profoundly shape how knowledge about difference in the field is produced. Can you give can you give an example of of the the geopolitics of the knowledge production that you're talking about? Yeah. Um, so I guess if we if we look back um, through history, I mean, modern education systems and practices have had deep connections to colonial projects of control. So historical research has shown how education was central to colonial administration. For example, in the British and the British and French control of Africa and South Asia. And from the late 19th century, education scholars um, in particular played a role in establishing educational systems in the colonised world. So, you know, in the, in the post-colonial context after World War II, research has also shown how education was a primary site of soft power. So, for example, in the 1950s, uh, the US State Department contracted over 50 universities to work in undeveloped, underdeveloped countries worldwide. Um, so systematically, if you like, Western comparative educationalists uh, operated as, as experts in a way who legitimised and spread particular ways of knowing the world. So, I mean, this, you know, where, where knowledge is seen to reside and how it's seen to kind of um, be legitimately spread, I mean, this is, this is part of the, ge- the geopolitics of knowledge production and circulation. Um, So, you know, particular scientific ideas about education in the name of progress, development and modernization, these were all part of this kind of um, effort uh, around post-war nation building uh, that that was tied to uh, the geopolitics of the time. I'd say that after the Cold War, such uh, ideologically charged engagement with education overseas was Arguably not so explicit. However, there have been scholars who have pointed out the ways in which contemporary education development is enmeshed in new securitization agendas and militarization agendas, and also how the resurgence of particular types of methodologies, um, particularly kind of the resurgence of quantitative uh, methods in the field, produces a particular type of knowledge that's tied to neoliberal agendas of governance. So we can see that... um, you know, you know the, the the saying, the old saying goes, you know, the, the relationship between knowledge and power. I mean, this is very much seen in how comparative education uh, has has been used historically. It's very much bound up in in a broader politics of of global change. Let's take a short break. Each year, the Comparative and International Education Society holds elections for the position of vice president. The way the society is organized means that this person will automatically become the president of the society after serving one year as vice president. Every VP, in other words, steps up to hold the presidency. So, VP elections are a big deal. This year, two outstanding candidates have been nominated, David Post and Aaron Beneva. Fresh Ed will interview both David and Aaron about their plans for CIES if elected. In the run-up to these interviews, which will air on February 6th, you can submit questions for me to ask both candidates. You can submit questions by tweeting at FreshEdPodcast or by emailing will at FreshEdPodcast.com. Questions have to be submitted by January 25th, so please hurry. Let's return to my conversation with Arathi Shripakash about colonialism in comparative and international education. 
So is one of the one of the main problems here is that indigenous knowledge is not recognized as being as valuable as the knowledge coming out of the the global north. Yeah. So as Raylan Connell emphasized a decade ago in her book Southern Theory, the global south is a rich and varied theoretical resource, but a review of comparative education research will quickly reveal the dominance of northern theoretical tools and views. So the South simply is seen as a site of data collection and the North as a site of theory generation. And this is indeed a matter of geopolitics. It's about where expertise is seen to lie, where labour and institutions are funded, and how particular theories and methodologies are made legitimate, if you like, over others. Um, and I guess to give you a contemporary example, there are currently huge uh, national funding schemes in the United Kingdom where I work uh, to sponsor social science research on international education. And what I found uh, that is built into many of these schemes is an explicit requirement for so-called capacity building. Now, capacity building can take many forms, but it does have echoes of technical, assistant pro technical assistance programs in which Western scholars are positioned as the experts using their knowledge to build capacity in poor countries. Now, you know, I can see that materially poor countries might benefit from infrastructural provision, but there is a risk that such discourses of capacity building in the research world positions the global south as somehow empty of its own epistemological resources for tackling those complex social problems that, are, that, that, that societies are facing. So as such, the, the uneven power relations in the circulation and the production of knowledge in education is, is reproduced. So once again, the South is seen as a, a site of data extraction, if you like, or, or intervention through the use of Northern theoretical expertise and in fact, Northern labor. And yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I see this all the time. And, and in fact, I must say, I, I admit to, to doing some of it using, you know, using French theorists to try and understand what's going on in Cambodia. Um, and so I feel like I'm, I'm also very much a part of that, you know, that legacy of comparative education. Well, uh, I mean, and I think that's, it's really important for us all to be reflecting on this because I too, um, you know, I was trained uh, in the work of Northern theorists. This is the, uh, this is still uh, figures highly on our syllabuses within within the field, and I think it's important to recognise um, uh, our own sort of the, the ways that these legacies um, shape our own engagement in the field and how we ourselves are enmeshed in this. So uh, it's not it's this is not so much about uh, instilling guilt within individual researchers or trying to lay blame um, amongst individuals, but it is about recognising uh, the history of the field and understanding. Uh, the deep politics um, in what we do so that we can strive to act ethically um, in our engagements moving forward. So go, turning to the field again, I mean, how do, how do textbooks on comparative education, how do they understand these issues of, of uneven knowledge production and uneven power relations and and theoretical devices being created in the global north and simply being applied to developing countries or the global south like so you know are these are these issues 
captured in in the histories or in the in the textbooks on comparative education? And more importantly, uh, is there a recognition of of indigenous knowledge in comparative education? Hmm, good question. So, I think um, I think there is a growing recognition of indigenous knowledge as um, some theories, even the the role of kind of post-colonial analyses in the field. This is there there is an emerging discussion on this. Um, but I would say that the the way that it's com- uh, frequently configured is, uh, I guess, an add-on to the dominant uh, narrative of the field emerging from the West. So it might be that you've got the dominant narrative, but then, oh, um, you know, there have been different ways of knowing, and, and it's sort of uh, an additive approach. I think uh, Raywan uh, Connell talks about this as a mosaic epistemology, that there are many different parts that make up a picture. So this this is um, this is one way to think about uh, plurality. But I think in general it 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 doesn't um, address head on the relations of power um, that that mean that some knowledge becomes uh, more legitimate um, and is allowed to become dominant over others. So one of the things that you do in this introduction to the special issue is in a sense, give a retelling of of uh, one of the main founders of the field named Isaac Kendall. Can you can you tell us this, in a sense, this retelling um, of his background? Yeah. Okay. So this is um, an interesting story that uh, uh, Keita actually did did some work on, and um, Kendall was a professor at at Columbia's Teachers College and was a lead researcher at the university's International Institute in the 1920s up to the 1940s, I believe, Um, and really reflecting the field's interest in epistemological relativism that I mentioned before, Mm. the idea of um, uh, national cultures uh, and characters. Kendall really did acknowledge national differences. He had this sort of acceptance of plurality in his work at one level. This is certainly the, the, the narrative um, uh, of uh, the foundational scholars such as Kendall. Um, but I think what's important to recognise is that he was writing from a particular geopolitical position. So the International Institute in which he worked was involved uh, in the administration and assessment of colonial education systems introduced by the US government, worked that, that by and large, accepted the logics of US imperialism. So what we start to see in Kendall's work is that difference, uh, national difference, was explained through cultural models. So different cultural levels were used to explain the failure of particular nations in introducing a so-called American system. And it's the American system that Kendall described as, and this is a quote, the most advanced experiment in democratic education. So national difference then became uh, understood as a kind of civilizational gap. So if you weren't able to have the most advanced um, system in your country, then this is somehow a reflection uh, of your your, your lack of or a gap in your civilizational um, history or, or capacity. So at the core of such ideas, even if they were implicit rather than explicit, were racialized schemes of stages of maturity or stages of civilization in which colonial subjects were placed at the bottom of an evolutionary progression. So 
even though we might see um, Kendall and other founding figures in the field as um, very much respecting uh, diversity, these appeals to diversity, that recognition of national difference, are actually not without hierarchy. So a relativist epistemology might appear to value diversity, but when it's situated within its geopolitical context, we can actually see how it reproduces a colonial logic of difference and, in fact, subjugation. And, it, and you know, with Isaac Kendel, I mean, that story, it, it's, it also has that, the, well, the complex notion of the expert or where, where it's, it's Isaac Kendel himself who can help those lower-tiered civilizations move up with using the right prescribed um, educational kind of remedies. And so, I mean, you have that notion too, which I, I find, well, I mean, it's so telling back then, but also so relevant to today's world of comparative education scholars doing a lot of work in educational development, where we see a similar sort of, um, well, I would say a, a similar sort of hierarchy and difference. Absolutely. And I think um, it's it's in how our programs are structured. It's where it's where how funding circulates through the field. Um, and, and there's a real sort of, I guess, uh, epistemological legacy here in the sense that um, you know, modernization theory, uh, even though it, it has been highly contested over many decades, I think it continues to be uh, dominant, if not named, within the field currently because expertise is seen to lie in the West and, and the idea that the non-West would be modernizing or developing in this kind of linear, staged way um, with these sort of correct inputs from the West. I mean, this this sort of relationship very much exists uh, in in the present day. Do you, do you think the modernization theory is, in a sense, um, in many respects, the assumed position of many researchers in the field? Uh, I think, if not consciously, then I think it's something that's certainly enmeshed in our um, in our categories of analysis and our approach, uh, the ways we might. Uh, certainly in comparative ed, when we're thinking about systems in one country and think, okay, how might how might we reform an education system in another to look like the ideal? Um, so I, I certainly think if it's it's not necessarily um, something that uh, that scholars or researchers might set out to be uh, enacting, but I certainly think it's embedded in our frames uh, of, of knowledge. And, and, and part of that comes um, back to this, this history of comparative ed education as having the normative uh, West, uh, you know, central to, to our idea of the world. So some of this, um, this inequality or this privileging of the North over other um, ways of knowing and thinking, um, comes from this, like you're saying, the structures that exist of comparative education. And so, you know, those structures can be, as we said earlier, the, the World Congress. And even there, you were set, you, you show that there's, there is an, an inequality in, in which societies have, in a sense, power within that umbrella organization. Yes, very, um, very much so. It's also, uh, if, if we reflect on uh, journal publications, uh, 
some of the leading journals in our field are published in English. They are run uh, mostly in the UK and in North America. Uh, their editorial boards are largely uh, made up of scholars from those countries. Uh, it, I, I think that these all um, create factors which which um, allow Western frames of knowing to dominate in the field. So your new special issue um, tries to take a um, or bring in ideas of post-colonialism into the field of comparative education. What is post-colonialism in a nutshell? So post-colonialism in a nutshell, uh, I'd say that it's about recognizing the historically specific uh, relations of colonialism that uh, led to or deepened uh, inequalities between countries and peoples and groups. And having uh, a, a deeper understanding of this history also allows us to, to see the active legacies of colonialism uh, in the present day. So we might say that we are in the post-colonial era, as in after colonialism, but there are continuing legacies of uh, the colonial era that, that shape um, our present knowledge systems, the hierarchies around uh, uh, institutions, um, cultural practices, and even the ways in which we, we perhaps don't use language of uncivilised and civilised anymore, but those hierarchies of culture and practice that, that continue to be sort of assumed, if not explicitly, implicitly within the field. So you, you mentioned that, you know, we can recognize and reflect on the history of our field in our, in our own work. Um, but what other, you know, how else can we, in a sense, try and break free from this colonial past that is so clear and that you articulated so clearly? Well, I think um, one part of it is to start considering what uh, the, the role of Southern theory and Indigenous knowledge might be for the field. Um, and I, I suppose in saying that, what I do want to emphasise is that these terms, Southern theory, Indigenous knowledge, um, they attempt to capture the many and rich sources of knowledge about the social world that have been located in the global south or and, you know, amongst Indigenous peoples. So there is no sort of one Southern theory or one Indigenous knowledge. Um, they're not sources that are static uh, and unchanged by time, um, but just like any other knowledge system, they're historically situated and, and mutable. So I, I guess um, by, by thinking about these um, areas of knowledge as, as legitimate and important uh, resources for the field, um, we start to decenter the global north in the process of knowledge production. Um, and I think this has been done fairly well by um, the decolonial school uh, that has emerged most prominently in Latin America, which has used the culture of the colonized to critique the coloniality of knowledge, if you like. And so you think that th these sort of approaches could be, could, could help comparative education as a field kind of I don't know. Embrace embrace postcolonialism and 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 maybe make knowledge more diverse and open and you know have new new ideas. Yeah, I mean, okay. So I think there's a, there's a few things that that it could do. So 
Firstly, the use of such dominant theoretical frameworks, um, sorry, the use of such non-dominant theoretical frameworks, so Southern theories, Indigenous knowledges, etc., can work to undermine the uneven power relations that naturalises the intellectual division of labour in the field. The idea that we talked about where uh, Western scholars uh, are seen as experts, uh, that, you know, that somehow that the expertise lies in the West uh, and can be applied to the, the global South. Um, so it, in that sense, it sort of interrupts the taken for grantedness of Western expertise in, in the work of comparative education. Uh, secondly, I think that such knowledge uh, helps to provincialise what's otherwise seen as a universalist um, epistemology. So the idea that Western theory is universally applicable, well, I think this is an idea that gets shaken up and, um, and I think uh, it recognises that there are different ways in which the complex social problems of the world can be, can be addressed. Um, and I think lastly, the, the recognition of Southern theory and Indigenous knowledges revalues uh, knowledge that has been subjugated by colonial power relations over different periods and times. So whether it's whether we're talking about colonialism, relations of neo-colonialism, and what we're seeing in the contemporary um, uh, context, you know, neoliberal governance, which is narrowing particular forms of knowledge. So. And I think this is about that difficult task of countering what Guy Spivak terms epistemic violence, uh, in which the knowledge and understanding of the Southern majority are dismissed and the South, if you like, has continued to be positioned as the colonial other. So it's, it's really about disrupting that hierarchy of the South as other, if you like. So what we're calling for here, I suppose, is, a, is an ongoing conversation about the how the field can recognise its colonial entanglements and and work towards this sort of post-colonial engagement. Well, it's, it sounds like a very exciting future direction for our field. So, Arathi Sriprakash, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. Thanks very much, Will. Arathi Sriprakash is a lecturer in the Sociology of Education at the University of Cambridge. She co-edited with Keita Takiyama and Raywin Connell the special issue of Comparative Education Review entitled Contesting Coloniality, Rethinking Knowledge Production and Circulation in Comparative and International Education, which will appear later this year. Fresh Ed is brought to you by the Globalization and Education Special Interest Group of the Comparative and International Education Society. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Please note that opinions expressed on the show are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not CIES or the Globalization and Education SIG, which take no institutional positions. If you've liked what you've heard, please rate us on iTunes. It helps. And please be sure to visit us at freshheadpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brim, and I'll see you next week.